everyone. Good afternoon. Hope you're enjoying your lunch. My name is Emma Cox. I'm programs chair with the Chicago chapter. Um, I'd like to also uh, mention that uh, Kurt Karnatz is my co-chair, and Rob Weatherald uh, is not able to be here today, but um, Kurt, raise your hand. Yep. <laughs> all right, on behalf of all of us and the programs committee, we're excited to put on some exciting programs this year. So thanks for attending this one. We're really excited to have these amazing speakers here. So I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers for today, um, who are going to talk to you about e-commerce. Today we have a duo from Cushman and Wakefield, Ben Conwell, Senior Managing Director and Practice Leader for Cushman and Wakefield, focuses specifically on e-commerce and electronic fulfillment for the firm. Prior to joining Cushman and Wakefield, Ben was the Director of North America Logistics Real Estate for Amazon Fulfillment Services. Outside of his everyday, Ben is very involved with NIOP, Urban Land Institute, Pacific Real Estate Institute, Bellevue Schools Foundation, YMCA, YMCA of Greater Seattle, and Bellevue Young Life. He's not busy at all. Also from Cushman and Wakefield, we are joined by Jason West, Executive Managing Director, where he specializes in business development and transactional real estate services for the corporate occupiers as well as the institutional investors. Over 20 years of his career, Jason has completed an, an impressive 900 transactions, totaling over 40 million square feet in excess of $1.5 billion. Jason's list of notable clients include Amazon, Venture One, Prologis, Duke Realty, and United Technologies, just to name a few. Jason received recognitions at the 2012, 2014, and 2015 Chicago Food Depository Awards, just a few of his, of his many recognitions and awards. And finally, we welcome Ryan O'Leary, Regional Senior Vice President with Duke Realty. Ryan has been with Duke since 1998, where he started as a leasing representative. As a senior VP of the company's Chicago operations, Ryan has played a leading role in the market's industrial leasing and development advancements. Ryan is the Emeritus Board President and is actively involved with the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties, Chicago Chapter. Ryan has worked with many impressive clients as well throughout his career, including Webster Stephen Products, the GSA, Liberty Mutual, and Navistar's headquarters redevelopment. As you can tell, we have some very impressive speakers here, so please join me in welcoming Ben, Jason, and Ryan. Uh, good afternoon. Yes, so thanks for the, uh, for the generous introduction. My, mom, my mother wrote that, by the way. That's <laughs> Uh, I bring you greetings from Seattle, which is where my home is, and I will tell you with, uh, with all sincerity, you all are a, a, a much better looking group than that, that NACOR group in Seattle, so, so take that with you. And, and lastly, about Seattle, I turned on the news when I got in last night and, of course, saw the coverage about the Cubs all getting their World Series rings. In Seattle, we can barely spell World Series. It's that foreign a thing, so congratulations to all you, you Cub fans. My last, my last little housekeeping comment. So, as as Emma described, my focus is around e-commerce, and the importance of mobile can't be can't be overstated, right? So, if during my remarks, I can't speak for for Jason and for Ryan, but if during my remarks, 
if I see people on their phones and you know other devices, I'm not offended in the least. It's it's not that I think you are totally disinterested in in what I'm saying. Um, I'm not bothered by that. I know you're probably just shopping or you're doing something to, to stimulate the economy, so feel free, okay? And so with that, the way we have carefully rehearsed this program is I'm going to give some high-level remarks about kind of global uh, e-commerce, um, and then we'll transfer to Jason to talk about Chicago, and then and Ryan will talk about uh, their activity in Chicago and specifically uh, some, some information about one particularly big, cool, impressive project. So with that, I'd like to start just with a, a couple of facts and figures. I'll try not to overwhelm folks. So today in the US, retail online, okay, so B to C, is just a little bit shy of 400 billion at the end of 2016. So about 400 B with a, uh, billion with a B. And as you can see in this chart, if it's a little difficult to read, I apologize, but we track three metrics. The bottom line is total retail sales in the US. And as you can imagine, it bumps right along in the low to mid single digits on a, a quarter over quarter uh, basis. The middle line is, is total retail e-com. So that's, um, that's very, very flat, very, very consistent at about 15% a year. You can almost predict that's where it's been the last couple of years. You can almost predict that's where it's going to be over the, the near term. So obviously growing significantly, no surprise, significantly faster than total retail sales. And then the top line is tracking uh, Amazon's quarter year over year growth. And as you can see, it's not consistent, number one. Number two, you can also see it's significantly higher uh, trend-wise than, than online in total. So it's clear Amazon is taking a bigger share of a growing pie, okay? And, and if I think if we all went to everybody's garage or their, or their recycling bins, probably in the room, there's a whole lot of corrugate from online orders that we've all done on a daily basis. And this, this data pretty much confirms most of us are shopping through Amazon.com, but not all of us, okay? So next up, in terms of penetration, that $400 billion of uh, B2C sales in the US represents about eight plus or minus percent of total retail sales uh, in, in 2016. But then more significantly, if you take out a couple of things like, like gasoline and your bar bill, um, things that you really, can't, you really can't buy online, and you adjust the denominator, then online is a little north of 9%. So almost to double digits, depending upon how you adjust it. And as you can see by the slope of that line, it, uh, it's a pretty predictable increasing share as we, uh, as we go forward. So that's total, but if you look at what some of you who might be retail geeks, probably none of you in the room, but if you look at the sector called GAFO, G-A-F-O, this is the share of general apparel, furniture, and, and other, as Uncle Sam defines it. This is sort of the sector where we all do most of our online shopping. So if you look just at that sector, you can see that penetration online to total GAFO is almost to 30%, okay? Significantly greater than overall. I think this is a really interesting slide. If, if anybody in this room has exposure in your business to commodity, type retail, 
We're certain, we, we certainly are, right? I mean, we own warehouses across the country. Um, we have a lot of retailers that house their products. There's been, I think the last count, 11 bankruptcies in this type of retail since the start of the year. That is more than all of the retail bankruptcies that, were, that happened last year. So we're paying particular attention to this, and I think this growing share of the e-com on this side is, is really one of the big driving factors of what's <coughs> happening there. Um, so as much as e-commerce has just a, an unbelievably good effect on industrial real estate, it is, it's also having a negative impact, and we're, we're paying attention very closely to this. Yeah, good, good point. I like to distinguish it's really good news for some, and it's, it's very disturbing news for others, depending yeah. upon, like you say, which side of the trade you're, you're on. Catch me afterwards. I'd be glad to go geeky about uh, the retail world and some more about uh, traditional fixed retail closures and some of the dynamics behind that. But yeah, I'm right with you. Makes perfect sense, Ryan. Okay, so who have been the winners here in the last year of, um, of online? Well, uh, winners in the last year really amount to... Are we good? Can you hear me this way, Todd? Okay. All right, I have done something foolish, so while Todd comes up here and rescues me. <laughs> yes, there we go. If you look at, at uh, who the winners are in the retail world online, right, these are a lot of recognizable traditional names, and they have unbelievably high, very significant growth rates in online. Okay? You see 30-some-odd percent per target, 30, 40 percent on Macy's. Very impressive percentages, and these retailers really make a big do about their, their online growth percentages, right? These are success stories, but un unfortunately, these are big growth numbers on a very, very small base. So it's not enough to, quote, save the struggles at Macy's, the struggles at Penny's, the struggles at Target. But it clearly is an area where they're investing heavily to try and add scale, and one of these days, make money on their online offerings. Okay, we'll talk briefly about the delivery world because you can't talk about the online universe without talking about some of the, the ramifications for folks like UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, and, and the parcel carriers. Um, we talk a lot in, in our practice about the coming boom in cross-border e-com. Okay, today, most everything significantly comes from Asia, comes through uh, LA Long Beach, and it gets its way to Chicago probably by, by, by rail or by truck. With really exciting, very, very compelling demographic changes in China, we're seeing, we're right at the cusp of, of growing flows that go in the other direction. Affluence, digital, um, digital familiarity in China, um, huge, Gen X population, the Chinese uh, online market is just beginning to explode, and a significant part of that growth comes from China, obviously, but we will see increasingly more and more of that coming from US-based retailers. They love luxury, they love cosmetics, they love apparel and other super um, uh, recognizable brands like that. So more to come on, on cross-border. Last mile, everybody talks about last mile, and, and these guys will share a little bit about some uh, specific examples about last mile. But this is a huge growing share of activity in the industrial real estate space because it's a key part of the delivery experience for online. Um, 
Lots of talk about Amazon and their airplanes, Prime Air. This is really another, we're right at the cusp of this. We haven't seen anything in terms of scale about what Amazon's going to do to speed and drive the cost down of their delivery by air, by sea, and by, and by land. <clears throat> uh, today, Amazon is investing a significant amount of capital to grow its own parcel delivery business. So far, that's been just to focus on their own brown boxes that we all order. But, but you heard it here first. You probably didn't hear it here first, but some of us have been saying for many months, eventually, very soon, Amazon is going to take that scale and that experience and turn it around and make it available to every other retailer. So if we come back here in a year, surely in two years, we're going to see Amazon externally focused doing that delivery for, for others because they're so good at it and they can do it at a very, very compelling cost versus UPS and FedEx. And then this also has given rise to this huge cottage industry of, of uh, small innovative delivery service providers. Names that you probably know, Instacart or Postmates or, or Delive. These are point-to-point -point delivery folks. If you go to Whole Foods, and if you have Whole Foods delivered to your home, chances are it's Instacart, a pickup and delivery service. You can barely pick up the newspaper or go online every month and not see more people in this space um, getting capitalized, getting funded. So they need, they'll eventually need real estate space, but in the meantime, they're the ones who are connecting retailers to each one of our houses for a significant share of what we buy. And then the whole world of third-party logistics providers. Again, Ryan and Jason can talk more about this. If you're not Amazon, if you're not Target, if you're not Macy's, you know, huge retailers that have their own distribution and their own logistics network, most every other retailer in the country has got to pay somebody else to do online fulfillment and actually get this stuff delivered to your home. So another big driver of what we see in the industrial space that touches all of us indirectly is the emergence of these uh, third-party transportation and fulfillment providers. Okay, so those of you, I don't know if anybody recognizes this, either from your office, mailroom, or maybe your high-rise condo or apartment. As we're all buying more and more stuff, and all these brown boxes are getting delivered, it might not be this obscenely ridiculous, but it is a factor. Probably uh, you see this in your, own, in your own spaces. We see in some areas like in Manhattan, uh, in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco, some building owners, building managers saying, you as a resident, you in a co-op or a condo, yeah, you'll have a fixed number of deliveries. We'll take all that stuff in the mailroom or the management office, but you know, after six, eight, 10 a week, we're cutting you off. You gotta go somewhere else because, because of the overwhelming surge and buildup, the wave of all these boxes being delivered to homes uh, in, in these urban areas. So in lieu of that, we also talk a lot in our business about remote delivery. It, it, anybody use remote delivery, either an Amazon locker or a UPS delivery station, a pickup station? Anybody? Excellent. There's, there are two of you. You are the most technologically hip. <laughs> Again, this is an early trend. It's a convenience thing. It's a security thing to ensure that your packages are not jacked off your front stoop or, or stolen somewhere else. It's easy, it's free. Amazon is out leading this, but we'll see more and more of this to overcome and mitigate just the huge surge of brown boxes that hit our houses. So we'll talk briefly about our friends at Amazon. So 
Uh, I, I like to measure success and domination a couple of different ways. The first is by market cap. And if you can't quite read it in the back, if you look at more significantly to the right-hand side of this table, Amazon's market cap today, a little more than 400 billion. And if you took the, the other large, the next largest eight or nine retailers by market cap, it's still about 25% lower than where Amazon is, okay? So the market is significantly rewarding Amazon for its growth. They don't make money like the other guys have to do, but in terms of market cap, it's a significant driver. Anybody buy any, any apparel online? Anything you're wearing today you bought online? True confession? Okay, some of us. Who would have thought five years ago that we'd be buying as much clothing online as we, as we do today? Today, it is rapidly becoming the number one thing we buy online, passing electronics, which has historically been number one. And of course, Amazon being who they are, they're investing significantly in their apparel offerings, driving share, as you can see here, significantly into the mid-teens, but well on their way to probably topping 20-some-odd percent of total apparel in a couple more years. This is the year many pundits or, or analysts are projecting, finally, Amazon will surpass Macy's to become the biggest apparel retailer in the country. Okay? Not the biggest online apparel seller, but the biggest apparel seller. So those of you who haven't bought clothes online yet, it's coming, it's coming. Technology will make it easier for you, but it's coming. <clears throat> so as Amazon grows, certainly you see uh, traditional sellers like Macy's, even TJ, TJX, TJ Maxx and Marshalls, which today are killing it because where they are in a like a midpoint price point, Amazon will continue to take share from those players as well. Oh, so we can't talk about online without talking about our friends at Walmart. Um, they certainly have been in the news in really big ways over the last couple weeks. They're the number two uh, online retailer in America. They sit about a sixth or a fifth, depending upon how you measure it, of Amazon's total sales. Remember, it's a $500 billion company trying earnestly and, and madly to grow their online experience. And the way they're doing that, right, they're investing in new technology, they're buying new brands, ModCloth, Jet.com is very you know, popular when they did that deal. They are all in with their store network. Okay, they've got 48, 4,600 different physical locations across the country. They're investing significantly in getting all of us who buy online from Walmart to touch the store. And you saw just a couple of days ago, the news broke that they are shifting to, um, if you buy online and pick up your items in the store, remember, so Walmart doesn't have to ship it to your home, they're gonna, they're gonna give you a price discount. Nobody's ever done this before. This is a really powerful incentive, expressly intended to drive more traffic to the stores because when we pick up things we buy online and we pick them up in the store, more often than not, we're doing impulse purchasing and we're spending more net-net for those retailers. So big trend, big sea change. We may see other retailers do this. And then <clears throat> let me just close. I'll talk about e-grocery and, we'll, um, and then we'll wrap up to the other guys. Anybody buy groceries relatively consistently online? Okay. Those of you of my generation, we need to get on the ball because statistically, it's not just the younger generation, not just Gen X and Gen Y, but there's almost the same penetration among those of us who are baby boomers 
Um, baby boomers, we're, we're buying different things online. Statistically, we're buying dog food and heavy dishwasher detergent and stuff that we're too old and infirm, right, to get in and out of the car. And millennials are, are spending significant amount of money in artisanal bread and, and, uh, and, and high-end things because you all are so busy working, you don't have time to go to the store. So <clears throat> today, online grocery is a very small share of total, mid-single digits, huge runway, huge potential. But it is incredibly hard for Amazon or, or HelloFresh or Peapod or any of those players, it's incredibly hard to do grocery distribution. One of the drivers why more of us aren't doing it is because right, it's hard to let go of, I want to pick my own veggies, I want to pick my own bananas. It's so difficult to execute for an Amazon Fresh, for instance, to get that bunch of bananas that you ordered to your home not looking, looking like this. It's expensive. It's very complicated from a supply chain perspective, but the potential market is huge. Okay, so look for improvement in that space as we go forward. <clears throat> I'm gonna leave this to you guys to talk just a little bit about the significance of, of uh, online to total leasing in the industrial space, and maybe if you guys also talk a little bit about the different sure. building types. And I'll close with, uh, I'll close with this. So we, we, just a quick recap. So Amazon continues to take share. They're investing in innovation. Walmart is doing the same, trying desperately to catch up. We in the industrial real estate space, we've been the benefactors of huge increase in, in industrial leasing activity driven directly and indirectly by e-com. We'll have a lot more conversations about cross-border We'll be ordering, we'll be selling things to customers in Asia and watch for online grocery to, to really grow here in the next uh, three, four, five years. So with that, I will, I will pipe down and uh, Jason will talk, you'll talk about uh, some of the exciting things here in this market. Great, uh, thanks Ben. Um, I don't have any kind of slideshow or anything, that's way too high tech for me, but uh, um, I, I've been the fortunate one to be uh, involved in, in over a dozen site selection projects here locally uh, with Amazon in the last two years. Um, as most of you know or have read or seen, they've stepped it up big time um, in terms of their penetration of the Chicago metro area. Uh, in 2014, they made their first kind of foray into the market. They built two large facilities, about 1.6 million square feet in Kenosha. Uh, that's because our wonderful state was giving them some fits and, you know, <laughs> wouldn't quite let them into play without some other issues. But um, so they located their first distribution centers just across the border. State of Illinois woke up and said, oh, that's a problem. We should probably figure this out and let them come in. And they did. And so since then, um, they now have 16 facilities servicing the Chicago metro area, 7.2 million square feet um, that have all you know, come online in the last two years, uh, several of which are still under construction and will be delivering uh, later this year to fulfill the holiday orders. Um, one of those is uh, something Ryan's working on, but um, it's a mixture. So we did, we've done six transactions with them that are last mile delivery depots, and those tend to be between 50 and 150,000 square feet. 
they tend to be concentrated where the prime customer density is. They tend to be concentrated uh, where the demographics are, are good. Um, and, and logistically, you can service a you know, 15, 20 mile radius uh, out of those. Um, there's more of those to come because they don't have the map covered yet. Um, but you know, they're still doing a significant volume through the post office which I think we've all seen the post office is now working six days a week, primarily to support Amazon's package delivery on the weekends. Um, and, you know, Amazon can control that needle and how much volume they're pushing there versus how much they're bringing in-house and, and doing themselves. So, um, like Ben said, there's, it's evolving and, and there's more to come. They're clearly the leader. They're the ones that have us addicted to, you know, sitting on our couch and, and pushing the button and the package magically shows up in a day or two or sometimes in a couple of hours. So um, nobody else can really compete with that effectively and, and nobody's investing the way that they are to get there. Um, so six small little local delivery, we call them last mile facilities. And then the rest of these, um, the other 10 are all warehouses that are 400,000 square feet and bigger. Um, they've hired 7,000 people or uh, by the end of this year, they will have 7,000 people in Illinois that have been hired uh, to run all these facilities. Um, the largest headcount-wise is a deal that we did in Moni. Um, it's an 850,000 square foot building that is three stories, so it's 2.4 million square feet of floor space under one roof and employs 2,500 people. It's a fully automated sortation center um, where they, you know, they move primarily smaller products through an automated sortation system. Um, and then push that out. Um, I think it'd be interesting, yeah. though, for everybody to get a feel for, you said it's 7.2 million feet, right? Right. Over two years. I mean, the impact of that is, is amazing. I mean, a record absorption year last year was 23 million square feet, roughly 22 million square feet right. in Chicago. Chicago's a 1.2 billion square foot industrial market. So we had 22 million square feet of absorption last year. Amazon was 30% of it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing right. impact on the overall demand for industrial space. Um, if you look at the e-commerce sector, I've heard this stat, and you probably would know this better, but the stat I've heard is for every increase of a billion dollars in online sales, there's a demand for an additional one million square feet of warehousing space. So if you think about it, you know, e-commerce sits at 400 billion roughly, and it's 15% growth annually. That translates to 60 million square feet of new industrial space that's going to be needed every year outside of your organic growth uh, of other companies or other uses that are taking on uh, industrial space. So it has been a transformative um, thing in our industry. It's, it's really been a giant driver for us. Uh, so I just think it's yeah, interesting to look at it from a macro scale because we're one of the biggest owners in the country of industrial real estate. We have 140 million square feet. And we get asked that question all the time from analysts is like, how is this impacting your business? Um, and I've just seen, you know, the, the increase of not only from that perspective, the absorption, but, you know, our exposure to it, right? I mean, Five years ago, Amazon, from a gross lease value of the revenue we bring in as a company, was probably about 2.5%. They're up to 8.5% as, as of the first quarter of this year. 
So we're watching that closely too because how exposed do you want to be to one single company? Now, Amazon's credit's amazing, so it, it's not too scary at this point in time, but it's something that really has to be watched. It's, uh, it's, it's a growing thing. I mean, as a company, we did $650 million square, um, dollars in new development. E-commerce as a percentage of that total, 50%. Mm. Amazon alone, 35%. So it is, uh, it's driving not only locally, but nationally, it's really driving the industrial business and the development that's happening out there. And I think, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so as you see this trend of you know, reorganization, people coming back to urban rhetoric, for a lot of people building three-story warehouse facilities in Seattle, understanding that Duke has that large portfolio, and Jason mentions to the extent of Amazon with the Amazon Now and product, you know, being delivered on demand. As we look at the congestion of the urban core, where would you, where do you foresee, just even just looking at Chicago as a, under a microscope, where can Amazon put enough <laughs> facilities to deliver to, what would we say, there's 4 million residents living yeah. within the city limit? It, it is a great question. I mean, <laughs> if we had knew the secret sauce behind Amazon <laughs> supply chain, you know, it, it, we would be able to pick the site and know exactly where they're going. We have no idea. I th Neither do they. I, <laughs> I think what we've found is that there are two, two massive drivers, right? It's, it's population-based, po proximity to population-based. So I think as of this year, the stat I read was that 46% of the population of the United States is within 20 miles of an Amazon facility. Um, you know, so, and then the second piece to it for where these guys can locate is labor. And we'll look at one of these facilities and what goes into them. They're extremely expensive. Depending on the type it is, last mile, sort center as they call them, which are the three level monsters. And then the non-sort, which is the one we did, which is a little bit more standard of a box. But they all demand a ton of labor. So the first thing that they look at is, one, proximity to population. Two, does it pass the labor test? Because if they can't get the employees to, to work there, it doesn't matter. The real estate comes <laughs> after that, I think. So where they can go, running out of spots. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, Jason makes the point of the, the demand factor of getting it now. Are they going to be, are they running in small parcel cars like UPS runs on brown truck as opposed to, you know, semi-trailers and, you know, truck aprons and stuff with, you know, cars going back and forth in a cross-tax facility? Or are you going to see a more of those, that you see those orange cars, you know, and white, you know, Amazon trucks driving through our neighborhoods? Are they going to take 20,000 square feet, you know, spaces because of the market demands that? I'm just curious as to what's it really, are they going to do? There's probably not enough efficiency in that size space, but they're making moves and they're doing things that are just kind of out in left field. I mean, they're they're opening on college campuses and they're gonna, you know, there, there's some push to maybe take over some of these college campus bookstores and things like that that'll be, you know, run by Amazon and they'll be shipping packages there to deliver to the students as well as selling them books and textbooks and everything else. Um, they're open bricks and mortar retail stores uh, in certain locations. They're they're dabbling in all sorts of different things. Um, the last mile delivery depots they take a semi load, several of them every day, that come from these big warehouses. Semi truck drops off packages. They get loaded into vans. The vans shoot out on the routes, and it's you know it seems like an impossible system, but. You know, I, I've, we did one in Lyle. There's a, they, they took an old DHL facility in Lyle, 
I was standing there, I watched it. A semi-truck came down from their Kenosha facility. A little SWAT team of, you know, Amazon army men, you know, <laughs> un un unload, the, unload the trailer like that, throw it on conveyor belts, gets loaded into about 15 or 20 little delivery vans, and within minutes those are all on the road, and, you know, and that all happens pretty quickly. So it's, it's pretty crazy, and there's four or five of those routes being run every day from Kenosha to Lyle, Lyle to your house. So it's, it's fascinating and complicated and, you know, they, they don't know what they want. We don't know what they want. We just, you know, when they call, we try to help them. So, sometimes they want a dot on the map that's impossible, you know. It's like, oh, we want a warehouse in Evanston. Well, that's not going to happen. So. Right. It, 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 the whole magic here is to try to get inventory as close to the customer as possible, right, to enable... The, the Prime Now offering to get it to you in two hours. But that's really, really expensive. And it's, you're right, it's, it's um, infeasible to have great selection uh, 20 blocks from, from where you live. So, so what Amazon, it's, it's just what FedEx does, it's what UPS does, it, and that is develop the fastest um, down, downstream flow, if you will. And, and a key piece of that is the last, the last piece, that last mile. I, I, I very quickly clicked through a, uh, a graphic that showed last mile deals that Amazon has done. Again, so these are you know, 20,000 to 300,000 square foot spaces nationwide. Amazon has done three and a half million square feet of these small spaces in the last two years. And there's a lot more to come. There's a lot more to come. It's expensive to wedge in close to population densities, but that's the model, it's inevitable. It's expensive and time consuming. All, all the big developers are trying to figure that out. It's kind of the new buzzword, right? Go infill, get closer to the population, start redeveloping sites within the city. But when you really start to think about it, um, they're small. And so at the end of the day, unless you're gonna do a ton of them, it's really hard to make an impact on the bottom line when you're a, a company as large as we are. So the bigger boxes obviously have a much greater impact for us. I think it, what it's gonna do, it's gonna open up a lot of opportunity for smaller um, real estate investors and developers that, are, that have product you know, closer to the city. And you know, Amazon's pretty flexible about what they'll take too. Those don't have to be the 40 foot clear, perfect new assets, they can, they can really take an old functional manufacturing thing that might be obsolete for almost everybody else and, and work it out if it's close to where it needs to be. So that, there will be a lot of opportunity in the coming years, I think, on, on that front. Um, but for us, you know, it's, it's a little harder to focus on because it's, it's smaller, there's smaller impacts and they're really time consuming and expensive to do. Yeah, and for all the corporate real estate folks in the room, I mean, there is no doubt there's an Amazon effect. When they, when they come to town and they start opening, it, it's really disruptive to the labor pool. Um, and we're trying to figure that out. Everybody's trying to figure that out right now is, okay, you know, Amazon's going to open over here. They're going to hire 1,000 people there and 500 people over here and 1,500 over there. And what's that going to do? And it's, it's deterring activity in some spots. Other users are saying, hey, I don't want to be by Amazon. If they're over there, I want to be over there. Um, and then you've got some that say, oh, Amazon's there. That's great. I'm going to, you know, I want to be next to them because I provide boxes to them or whatever. Um, so, you know, the corporate real estate world is paying attention to what Amazon's doing because of the labor. Um, like, 
uh, Ryan said they're also gobbling up all of these buildings, which is also disruptive. Um, they drive up the prices kind of artificially because when they come in and they say, oh, we're going to need four big boxes, and they take all the inventory off the shelf, and it, uh, it creates this sort of false, you know, demand that isn't sustainable. And then, uh, and then the other thing that is important that hasn't really been uh, vetted out yet, but it's coming, is aside from all the new construction and spec, you know, spec development that's going on across the country to get in front of some of these deals, what product is going to be hitting the shelf from all these other retailers that are going to be coughing up space uh, as they go out of business or as they shrink their footprint? Sears, H.H. Gregg, you know, all these other companies that are like, you know, on the way down and are going to be coughing up big chunks of space uh, in certain markets. So, you know, that's another thing that, you know, we're paying attention to on the ground and our, our clients and owners and things are asking and the corporate community in some cases are kind of following around saying, okay, which, which one of these buildings could I maybe pick up cheap uh, that's maybe already outfitted with uh, material handling equipment, things like that, where, you know, if I'm picking on Sears, but let's say, you know, wh what building is Sears going to cough up because we know they're going to they're going to cough something up. Uh, where can we come in behind them and just grab it and go and have a kind of a plug and play operation ready to go? So, um, interesting things coming down the pipe. Well, I think I think the transaction we ended up doing in Aurora uh, at the end of the year with Jason, we did a 1.4 million square feet worth of Amazon leases in December of last year. I think the reason we were part of the reason we were probably the beneficiary of that is because they had completely tapped out the labor pool in Will County. <laughs> I mean, exactly. So they, they they made a conscious decision to scatter around the market. You know, they did 2,500 employees in Moni, two buildings, about 2,000 people in Joliet. A big building in Romeoville that took another thousand people. We went up to Waukegan, took 600,000 feet, another few hundred people up there. So it was kind of like, okay, we got to go west now, I-88, what's out there? Well, there's Duke. And Duke had a 400,000 foot empty building with a 50 acre site right across the street where they could build another million feet. And it just sort of worked. And the labor's there between Naperville and Aurora and that whole region. So you it's a sign of really good planning. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Awesome. Is there a picture oh. of that? Yeah, as a real, real estate's you know half luck, right? <laughs> Most of the time, so. Um. That's an area of our park out in Butterfield uh, in Aurora. So it's the park we started back right before the crash. And uh, we built the first building that has the grayer roof. You can tell it's a little older, right? Which is a 500,000 square footer. Um, we ended up leasing it to Follett Books, which um, was actually at the time one of the biggest competitors to Amazon. Now they actually sell a lot to Amazon. So. Um, that facility is an e-com facility. It's basically all robotic. It ships their books out. And then we had a bunch of land to go through. Um, then this is right at 59 and 88, yeah. if you're not real familiar with the turf. And I know it doesn't look it, but for real estate, you know, for a million footer, this is about as in infill as you get, because this is really the first big industrial park as you come west from the city on 88. So we love the land position. We like the labor pool because of Aurora within proximity. Um, so we were successful in, in landing. Amazon's the big box that's right there at the top. And it's interesting because those facilities, it's, that's 23 acres under roof. I mean, these things are just absolutely immense when you, when you really put it, put it in perspective. So there was a lot of coordination that happened to happen on these things. Um, you know, between the 50 documents you have to negotiate with 
with Amazon to do it. You also have the state. And they're of awful to deal with. The state, <laughs> they're high maintenance. The state of Illinois. I'm happy to have a high maintenance <laughs> client as long as I've got the client. Uh, the state of Illinois, IDOT, um, you name it. There's so many agencies involved in getting this thing done. But you know the, these facilities do bring a tremendous economic impact. I mean, um, they carry with them 2,000 jobs. So it, it's an important thing. It's and it's a little bit. They look like a standard warehouse, but they're just they're not. These things are remarkably expensive. Um, here's a rendering of it. So you can see the a typical distribution center, and I what we've looked at is from from a, a, what it was 10 years ago when all DCs were set up for big pallets to come in, right, and sit on racks, and then when the stores need them, they would just send them out. So they might have a million feet, but the product would sit there and they'd have 20 employees that handled that whole million footer. This thing is set up completely different. It's got a ton of smaller product SKUs. Um, they are running 300 forklifts through this thing and picking each product and getting them out to those two-hour delivery stations all day. So they operate tremendously different than they did before. Yeah, and it's, and it's not pallets or cases, it's you know one piece right. at a time so it's highly automated and conveyors and tons of security so the employees don't stick that in their pocket and walk out with it so you know for every employee there's one or two cameras so it's, it's insane how much money they invest inside the box and for us that's true I mean these things are remarkably expensive you know we're a long-term owner not of all of these things because again we don't want to just have all Amazon in our portfolio but you know, the things that we're paying attention to is, okay, what happens when this lease expires, right? I mean, this is a really specialized facility. Can we repurpose this thing if, if it, the world changes again? It gets disrupted by something else. I mean, automation could come, is going to be a big player, I think, as we go through and labor becomes harder and harder. These facilities might not require 2,000 employees. They might require far less 10 years from now. So we're watching that, and we're trying to build these things that they could be repurposed back to a more traditional warehouse. Um, you'll notice all that parking, there's a white strip there. Um, we, we put in extra money to be able to cross dock these. Most facilities this side are not just loaded on one. So Amazon has all auto parking on one side and all semi-truck traffic and loading out the other side. So their material handling systems take all that product and then funnel it to one side of the building, where a traditional DC would have receiving coming in one end and you know um, the stuff going out to the stores or whatever on the other end. So we look at those types of things as we're going into these and trying to make sure that we're covering for it. And I oftentimes ask you know, how these transactions get negotiated and, and dealt with. The second piece we really look at, and you guys have both said it, is how expensive these things are. So where a traditional distribution center might cost you $50 a foot to build, um, these things are two and a half times that. So if you can imagine how expensive your bills are in July to air condition your house, <laughs> imagine a 40-foot clear warehouse that's a million feet fully air conditioned. So um, these things have a tremendous amount of power coming into them. They, all the systems are supremely beefed up. Uh, and Amazon, on top of that, puts in just millions and millions of dollars of their own material handling infrastructure that also draws A couple hundred out. million in a building like this. A couple hundred, a couple hundred million. That's yeah. good to know. See, I like that because then I have, I have a sticky tenant. It's hard to walk Very away from that hundred million you know, dollar investment at the end of the day. But we have to be able to sell these things, right? If we ever have to get out, and the market will only bear 
a certain amount of cost per foot risk, right? I mean, a lot of the Amazon transactions are a credit, you know, looking at the underlying credit of the company, but um, at some point there's a trigger, like I just can't be into a warehouse for that much money. So the way these things typically get set up for us, it's a very competitive situation because a lot of institutional capital is out looking, but it will be a negotiated funding level that we will provide up to X million dollars for this facility at a set return for, depending on the lease terms, from five to 10 to um, 15, even 20 on some of those sortation centers that they do. Uh, and then Amazon is either responsible for that overage or they can you know, amortize it as kind of a loan. Um, and that's how we've set these things up. It's worked fairly well for us. Um, we haven't sold too many of them yet, and the ones we have, we've been able to make sure we're, we're doing okay on. Um, so they're complicated, but they're, uh, they're great transactions to work on. Uh, Absolutely. I think we're running out of time. We'll open it up. Anybody have any questions or anything? Okay, sure. I'm curious about the... If you oh, I'm sorry. Would you wait just a sec? Vanna White's coming here with a microphone. <laughs> Hi, my name's Kate. Thank you. This is so fascinating. I wasn't sure really where you guys were going to be going, but I'm glad that I came. Um, Thanks for being here. <laughs> I'm really curious about the impact of technology. I'm interested about robotics replacing the workforce. I'm interested around drones and helping the distribution of products. I'm even thinking about the technologies in these buildings. Why aren't they, are they considering uh, alternative power options and some of those things? So just on technology. I, I could take a couple. These buildings are definitely considering alternate um, technologies. I think, I'm not sure I'm even supposed to say this, so stop recording, but this facility will be the first in the country where, you know, the typical forklift trucks are either mm -hmm. battery-powered, right, or um, propane. propane. Uh, this facility is all hydrogen fuel. So they'll have a hydrogen fuel center that are literally like gas pumps within the building that are burning, you know, once that's burned, it's just clean water emission. So uh, they, Amazon, and, in, and anywhere where they can, these roofs, these million foot roofs, are 100% covered with solar panels, which are generating the power for the buildings and then actually putting power back into the grid. You know, Chicago's not a great spot for that, so I seriously <laughs> doubt they will uh, make that investment on, on this particular building, but um, they, all the questions that you've asked, from what I've seen, they're they are the, one of the most innovative companies out there. Um, I don't know if you have any additional Just recently, there. last week, the news broke that they made a, um, a venture investment in a, an early stage technology around fuel cells. You know, another indication of trying uh, solar, investing heavily in solar, uh, significantly in wind, especially to power the data centers for the, for the uh, cloud business. Drones, we talk a lot about uh, drones because it's very cool, it's great PR. It was a master stroke of advertising a couple years ago when Jeff did that thing on 60 Minutes. But realistically, yes, I, I, I have lots of confidence that we're going to see some element of, of, uh, of remote uh, flying delivery. It's not going to be your, your, your pair of tennis shoes is going to be delivered to your front stoop. It's not like the Jetsons or, 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 or Star Wars. But where I think we'll see it We've started to see it in other countries who aren't as regulated as we. You know, it's very, very remote delivery. I, I can see grouped or ganged delivery, uh, a, a pod of six or eight small orders that fly to rural Montana and get delivered to a remote delivery place 
so that then customers go to that spot 10 miles away and pick up their order. So much more efficient than sending an Amazon delivery truck out into the hinterlands. So uh, robotics in the buildings uh, exploding in terms of the technology. Uh, Amazon's investment in one particular system has paid tremendous dividends, the Kiva system, but Amazon and, and, and other very, very high throughput e-com fulfillment players are investing in all kinds of very, very cool technology. What happens in this building in Aurora um, when, when Ryan builds one five years from now, it's going to look unbelievably different. I can't tell you how, just that it's going to be that, that different. Uh, the question is about workforce. Today, the, the real uh, benefit from Amazon's significant investment in technology uh, has not been to drive headcount down necessarily. It's to build throughput for the 2,000 and 2,500 workers who are in these buildings. Um, long term in this industry, it's inevitable that we'll see more efficiency per human, just as we do in, in, in manufacturing and probably every other field. It's too early to tell what that looks like, but Jeff and others are investing to get more orders out for every human. Yeah, and on the technology side, the driverless trucks, <laughs> driverless cars, I mean, that's here. It's now. It's being tested. And not just e-com, but every trucking company in America is thinking about driverless trucks. So. What else? Any other questions? Anybody buy anything in the last 35, 40 minutes online? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm now thinking about it. <laughs> well, great. Let's uh, give a round for our speakers. Thank you, guys. And look forward to seeing you all first part of next month. Thank you.